Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate, Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comic, Dr. Kim Lee. And today we're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in this modern day world with lots of different screens and we really want to help. What have we got lined up for this episode today, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and we'll be shooting the breeze with Alex Bache about digital detective burnout. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, demystify it, crunch the numbers, look at what's important to take away from that to help inform your family and how you make decisions with regards to your child's screen use. Today we're discussing an article from Vietnam about social media addiction and sleep quality and how your perception of yourself, your self-esteem, being kind to yourself, having empathy and compassion, how that can help mediate that. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round we're looking at some research out of Vietnam about Facebook addiction and sleep quality. The research has also looked at procrastination and self-compassion. Kim, why'd they do this research? The reason why the researchers did this study is essentially due to the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. We're all online. We're doing so much online. Increased use of social media and Facebook. And they wanted to make the connection between your social media use and your sleep. And they realised from surveying the 280 high school kids that although some of them were addicted to Facebook, they were able to sleep soundly like a baby and they wanted to know why. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they realised that there were some students who were able to be kind to themselves, have some self-compassion, and we know that when you are addicted to Facebook, you might procrastinate and you might not get things done. And then you start feeling anxious, distressed. And this is something that I deal with every day, seeing people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah, okay, right, that comes in too. Yes. So when people grow up with ADHD, they might actually experience something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which essentially means you're hearing like a broken record from your teachers, from your parents, oh, you're lazy, you didn't get stuff done, you didn't try hard enough, and then they start being self-critical and they start beating themselves up and that affects their self-esteem. However, for these high school kids who are able to be compassionate, kind to themselves, oh, okay, I spent a little bit too much time on Facebook. Oh, okay, I didn't do my homework, but tomorrow's a new day. Let's forget about it. And they were able to go to sleep, sleep like a baby. And sleep's so important, isn't it? Just the, the fact of getting better sleep would set them up better for what they're going to achieve in the next day. I wonder, though, did they look at, well, do, do these kids tend to then come back the next day and procrastinate less, or do they just keep on forgiving themselves for procrastinating and go further down that uh, tunnel? I suspect that they continue to procrastinate. Yeah. That's the nature of addiction, mm. is that you lose control. Yeah. And I guess there are some people out there who lose control and suffer severe negative consequences. And then some of us who lose control suffer severe negative consequences but are able to sleep soundly. Yeah, yeah, which is one negative consequence, you know, less. And that's good, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. And, And that's maybe a really interesting message, isn't it, for all of us that 
you know, we don't have to aim for perfection here. We don't have to sort of completely wipe out every single problem in our lives or in our children's or you know, teens' lives. But if we can make one thing better, let's do that. And this sort of seems to be a really nice path forward to, to making things better. The finding to me sounds pretty much like common sense. You know, does it does it gel with everything that you know already too? Yeah, I mean, when we assess people for emotional dysregulation, people who may have suffered a lot of trauma, a lot of childhood adverse experiences, we often recommend them things like mindfulness meditation, mm-hmm. things like dialectical behavior therapy. Oh, yeah. Things that help them sit with their emotions, mm-hmm. acknowledge their emotions, validate their emotions, and then let those emotions pass and be in the present moment. I could do a, with a bit of some of that too myself. I'm sure we all could, yeah. And, and that sort of comes back to my question, doesn't it? It's just sort of common sense about how to you know, lead a happier, more mentally healthy life. That, 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 that's all part of the mix. Um, did you have any reservations about the finding? Was there anything that you thought was missing or didn't quite ring true? One reservation about studies like this where there is obviously a very hot topic, controversial topic, Facebook, social media addiction, and then a nice feel-good takeaway from that being about well-being. And it really depends on what our listeners take away from that and whether they decide to continue the behavior that could be contributing to poor relationships life satisfaction, procrastination, Mm. not doing their homework, not waking up for school, not going to work in the morning because they're having problems managing their screen time. But, oh, I can sleep well because I'm kind to myself. So it's a bit of a balance. Yeah, I think being kind to yourself can translate into, "Eh, it'll be all right, someone else will pick up the pieces, I don't need to do anything different. So, yeah, there is a danger of that I can see, you know, and I'm... Speaking from my own experience there, not judging anybody else, but yeah, yeah, I can well imagine that that could happen. So you have to be just so careful and nuanced in how you communicate these findings, Mm. don't you? Which is always the case. They can always be twisted in some way and made more sensational or, or made more sort of feel good than they necessarily need to be, like you say. Will the finding affect your practice as a psychiatrist? Uh, I'd like to think that the time that I spend reading these papers makes a difference and um, certainly it'll make me think differently about Vietnam because obviously I'm I'm Vietnamese and Mm. I'm always interested in what they're producing and it sounds like they're really uh, looking at topics that interest me. And -hmm. and to me, it's already made me want to reach out to them on LinkedIn and and go, okay, how can we work together? Great. Lovely. Do you speak the language? I speak enough to to order some yeah. some food and oh, okay. grab a taxi and <laughs> do you speak hold a conversation. To, do you, okay, so do you speak enough to collaborate with researchers there? I'd, I'd like to think yeah? so. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. That that would be really great. I was wondering if you'd bring that up. So yeah, I'd love to hear more if you do end up doing some work with those uh, researchers. That'd be really interesting. So now the big question: How can the research inform parenting or caring for children? Great question. Look, a lot of the times I'm reinforcing with parents that the research says if you have an authoritative style of parenting, much better than authoritarian. Mm. So what do we mean by that? Authoritative is Mm. being kinder, wiser, explanatory, matter of fact, using a 
a tone of voice that isn't reactive. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be the really central concept with authoritative parenting, isn't it? It's not authoritarian. You're not sort of coming down on people, just ordering them around, telling them what to do. But you are bringing an insight that you have as an adult that children don't have. And that at the same time, you're able to empathise with them because you were a child once too. And mm. you need to always remember that. And that does seem to work out best for parents if they yep. can get that balance right. Because you don't want to be their best friend either. You know, you don't want to sort of act as if you're on the same level as them. You know, you are on a different level, but it's a warmth and an empathy that's going on between those levels rather than just bossing around. So, yeah, we all do our best, don't we? <laughs> we know what we have to aim for, and that's the main thing. Okay, thanks. Well, let's move on to the next segment. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about the kinds of attitudes that we might have towards ourselves and, and what we might like to inculcate in our children to help them get a better sleep and generally get a better start in life. The paper was by Tu Anha. Min An Quan Tran, Chun Yu Lin and Kui Li Nguyen. And the title is Facebook Addiction and High School Students' Sleep Quality, The Serial Mediation of Procrastination and Life Satisfaction and the Moderation of Self-Compassion. It was published in the Journal of Genetic Psychology. Full details in the show notes. Yeah, great pronunciation of Nguyen. I'm so good. <laughs> now, yeah. it's uh, time for our movie review, and Faye is going to tell us why Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events is recommended for ages 11 and up. Hi, and welcome. I'm Faye, and I'm here to provide CMA's review of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. I'll start by describing the movie's plot, before explaining which elements led the reviewers to say the movie is unsuitable for children under 8 years old with recommended parental guidance until age 11. You'll also hear some suggestions for things in the movie that you might want to discuss with your kids. But spoiler alert, if you haven't already seen it, I will be making references to how the story ends. Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events was originally released in 2004. At the opening of the film, the shadowed narrator, Lemony Snicket, warns us that the tale to follow is not a happy one. After a mysterious fire destroys their home and leaves them orphaned, the Baudelaire children are left with a large inheritance and in the care of their guardian, Count Olaf. Violet Baudelaire is an inventor. Klaus is an avid reader with a photographic memory. And the baby, Sonny has a special talent for biting things. Played by Jim Carey, Count Olaf is an evil genius who uses his skills as an actor and master of disguise to place the children in situations of great danger as he plots to secure their inheritance for himself. The children, using their own considerable abilities, courage and cooperation, manage to foil his plans. After Count Olaf's plot fails, the Baudelaire's are moved into the care of their kindly Uncle Monty. But when he encounters an unfortunate demise at the hands of the thinly veiled Count Olaf, the children are placed with their anxious Aunt Josephine. Before long, she too falls foul of unfortunate and distressing events, which leads the children back in the clutches of their dastardly guardian. The Baudelaire's have no choice but to use their combined skills 
one final time to escape Count Olaf and to reveal his true character to the world. In the process, they learn what truly makes a family and a home. Although the overall message of the film is a positive one, there are some themes that might be considered scary to young viewers, including the deaths of major characters, dark and gloomy sets, unattractive and menacing adult characters, and the mistreatment of the children who are yelled at, locked up, or forced to work by Count Olaf. There are also a few scenes of physical violence, including one where an angry Count Olaf strikes Klaus in the face, causing him to fall down, and another that depicts one of Count Olaf's acting troupe, who has a hook in his hand, attacking Klaus. Sometimes violence, or the threat of violence, is treated as comical, for example when Sonny bites Olaf on the leg. There are numerous scenes involving a car locked on railway tracks, snakes, bugs, worms and bats, a realistically fierce hurricane and a swarm of leeches. In many of these cases, the children themselves do not seem frightened. Older children may also be scared or disturbed by some of these scenes. The take-home messages from this film are that although there are good and bad people in this world, good wins out over evil. And that as long as they have each other, even orphan children can create a home and keep themselves safe. There are a number of values in the film that you may wish to encourage in your children. For example, the siblings are always kind, caring and cooperative with each other. And despite all the dire events around them, they never give up. Rather, they make the best of the circumstances they are in. They show good imagination, courage and independence, and they don't resort to violence to save themselves from their predicaments. You might also be pleased to see that the children's special strengths and talents don't follow traditional gender roles. The film can provide some opportunities to discuss with your children what your own family's values are and what the real-life consequences can be of some actions and attitudes. For example, Count Olaf seems oblivious to how many people he will hurt to get what he wants. There is also a theme through the movie of adults being reluctant to believe what children tell them. The CMA review of this movie concluded that the film isn't suitable for children under eight years old, as they may find many aspects of the film scary or disturbing, including the deaths of the children's parents and guardians and their own life-threatening experiences. The dialogue and plot may also be confusing to younger children. The movie is recommended for children aged 11 and up with parental guidance from ages 8 to 10. Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events is available in Australia on Stan, Apple TV, Google Play and Prime Video and you can read the full review on the Children and Media Australia website. And when Faye talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002 as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au.
You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on about how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time for our interview with Alex Baish, a psychotherapist from the Bay Area in the US, who specialises in treating digital process addiction in adolescents and young adults. We're especially keen to talk to him about how he helps parents to manage digital detective burnout. Hi, Alex. Welcome to Outside the Screen. Oh, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're really pleased to have you too. So you're a licensed marriage and family therapist. How did you get interested in digital process addiction? Many moons ago, I was a uh, what's called a behavior specialist, which is a kind of um, post-uni, post-college level um, behavior interventionist uh, when I was working for a program that would basically go into the community or into people's homes or schools, anywhere a challenging behavior was taking place and and work on behavior modification uh, with the the teen or the kid and the the parents. Um, And one of the things that I kept noticing is that if it was a addiction or dependence to a substance, there was plenty of uh, help, options, treatment, support. When it came to the overuse, misuse, or addiction to technology, typically gaming or social media, there just wasn't anyone. It didn't really matter where this was taking place. The school didn't have anyone. Parents, um, even parents of, of you know quite a lot of means weren't able to find any experts. And it was just very disconcerting just finding that there was such a desert really of people that that knew how to treat this and knew how to best support the, the kids and the family. So that was what first kind of got me interested. And then I um, ended up having a really long phone call with uh, someone that uh, I think you and I both know, uh, Hillary Cash, who runs uh, the Restart program out in Seattle. And after speaking to her, it really inspired me to go back and get my my master's and my degree and license and try and uh, yeah just kind of spread spread the message that there is a way to treat and recover from this and lead a healthy and balanced life. That's a very inspiring story and very similar to my experience in 2008 as a junior medical officer noticing that people were getting addicted to games and that really inspired me to become a psychiatrist and uh, one particular issue that you've been helping people with is the digital detective burnout. Could you please explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so when I say digital detective burnout, it's really just this process that ends up happening often with parents and caregivers, kids and teens, and even young adults, which is that they realize that, okay, our kid is playing too many games, so we need to really start uh, managing their use of this. And so let's put a parental control system in place, like on the phone, on the computer. And then of course, the kid or teen finds a way around it. And then the parents go, okay, well now we need to investigate further and we need to take even more control over their lives and their use of technology. And then of course, it just starts this really destructive and really exhausting sort of cold war almost where parents escalate the use of parental controls, the kid or teen finds a way around it. You know, kids and teens are very, very creative. So you have Mm. to give that to them. Yeah. And so the parents just get really, really overwhelmed and burned out and just uh, end up losing a lot of uh, hope. 
and faith in their own abilities to, to manage this, this uh, digital device use. That sounds like a really bad place to end up in. So what are some of the strategies that you recommend to prevent that happening? One of the first things I like to do is a method that's called motivational interviewing. And I'll do that with the parents. And basically what that is, is trying to get a sense of, okay, let's help them validate the difficulty of change and also talk about what values they're trying to impart in their kid or teenager. And in turn, uh, looking at, you know, what's called the miracle question. So in an ideal world, what rules and expectations would you want your kid to follow? How might things change if they were to follow even 25% of those? Do you think that might be a more reasonable goal to set? So rather than this all or nothing approach of I have to control all of the digital device use, we at least start somewhere. Mm. Alex, I wish I could refer so many of my uh, families to you because uh, we would get along so well. And um, whenever... I get interviewed for the newspaper or radio. Usually the article ends up on Reddit or on Facebook and people start piling on the parents and shaming them. And um, how do you think this all fits into the general way we could support parents better in managing their children's use of screens uh, without making the parent feel shamed by their challenges? It is often the case that people kind of just point the finger at parents as if being a parent means you inherently are imbued with some sort of knowledge of how to handle these devices. And so what, one of the things that I tend to focus on is just the empathy. And so talking to parents the same way that they could talk to their teens. And so what we'll do is we'll say, empathy is the key, reactiveness is the enemy. And the conversation, we really want to focus on their emotional state and health. So I'll start out by talking with the parents about their own emotional state and health and how that's been impacted. And so once we get the parents kind of coached up a bit, focusing on meeting their own needs, right? Securing your mask before helping others, right? Is a common saying these days. Once the parents have done some of their own self-care, then we'll take them into what's called the STEP model. And it's an acronym that stands for saying what the problem is, thinking about possible solutions, so collaborating as a team, examining each solution, picking the best one, and then seeing how it works, running an experiment. And by doing that, it sets it up so it's not all, it doesn't put all the responsibility on the parents, it doesn't put all the responsibility on the kid or the teen. It's saying, hey, we're collaborating, we're all on the same team, we're gonna run an experiment, and the best part is if it doesn't work out the way we want to, we can go back to the beginning and do the process again. And so there's no one party to blame mm. or to criticize because everyone's sort of in it on the same team. Mm. And the thing that I really like about that model, one of the many things I really like about it is the, the fact that it gives the kids agency, that it says to the kids, you know, you have competency to you know, be part of this process rather than you're just going to have stuff done to you until the day you turn 18 and then we turn you out and make you make all your own decisions and be responsible for everything you do. So that's a really, really nice way of bringing children along. I love that notion. Uh, empathy is the key and reactivity is the enemy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to use that, Alex. I'm going to steal that from my oh. playbook. <laughs> Good, please do. Yeah. yeah. Listening to you just gives me so much optimism for the future and where regulation is heading. 
if you could be a senator or an advisor to a senator, what would you um, recommend or change? Because uh, next month I'm actually heading to Canberra, our capital city, and meeting some health ministers. So I'm really interested to hear what you would like to see change in terms of regulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of focus these days on trying to, to limit the age and, you know, forcing there to be more um, age verification, things like that. I think that's so well and good. But again, like kids are smart. They're going to find ways around that. But if instead within, you know, TikTok, within Instagram, there were basically like a, a way to incorporate things that were more balanced that said, hey, you've been on this for the past two hours, maybe it's time to take a break, just like little things like that. So if there was a way to kind of create a different culture within each application that did generally support not binging. Mm -hmm. So even changing the, the cultures there. Or... I was just thinking that if you could find a way of changing the culture and bottling the process whereby one could do that, I think that would be worth a, a real lot. It'd be really lovely to see that, but it, it does really sound like things are getting better. But, um, you know, we always have to sort of stay alert and rise to the challenges, don't we? Yeah, certainly. It's definitely, a, I think, the million-dollar question these days. But I was just talking with a startup the other day, and what they're trying to do is make it so if someone is under the age of 18 and they're accessing social media, if they want to do it longer than an hour, they have to fill out, you know, a questionnaire basically, or they have to somehow engage or interact with a set of questions that are meant to seek a little more self-reflection. So yeah. what is my intention of staying on this longer than an hour? Like, what do I hope will happen? What am I going to get out of this? And just to have there be a little more intentionality and mindfulness and reflection mm -hmm. with use, whether it's gaming or social media, and I think something like that could be great. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting idea. Intention yeah. versus distraction, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Alex. It's been really lovely chatting with you, and I've got a feeling that we might want to catch up again in another little while and find out more about what you're thinking and what you're up to. But uh, it's been really lovely chatting, so thanks very much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode nine. We'd really love to have your feedback. So please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outside the screen pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment with me to assess your child online. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. And finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And this, this has been, been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.